Let's go ahead and get started. We're uh, so this week we're on chapter five, uh, starting on page forty-eight, chapter five, and uh, we're looking at the Word of God, the doctrine of Scripture, the Word of God. Uh, so, Jenny, yeah, if you want to move that. I think there's some pencils even next door. I just got to make sure you put them back because they're the kids' room. Uh, so, look, starting at the top of page 48, it says that uh, to say that the Bible is important is an understatement. Indeed, it is central to every part of Christianity. But we, and this is the important part. But why is it important? Why is the why is the Bible important to Christianity? Where did it come from? How can you understand it? And how does it apply to you? So the answer to these questions are vital to your continued spiritual growth. As the title of the lesson states, the Bible is God's communication to you. And so you need to learn to understand the Bible and apply it to your everyday life. And there's no better place to learn about it from the Bible than from the Bible itself. So let's dig in. But I think that's an important idea there, that, that sentence. Or it starts out, it says you need to learn to understand. So it's not something that's like... Uh, a taken for granted thing. It's not something that just comes by osmosis. It's not something that just happens uh, in the process of the Christian life. You actually need to apply yourself. You actually need to. You have to apply yourself to learning uh, the scripture. So, <clears throat> so. Uh, skipping down to just below the box there. It says, Some people teach that the Bible merely contains the Word of God. So 2 Timothy 3.16, and let's discover what's wrong with that statement. That statement that the Bible is, that it contains the Word of God. So 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, uh, when we're talking about what the Bible is and the statement that he records here, the Bible merely contains the Word of God. Uh, you know, this, this, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 starts out all scripture, every scripture, every part of scripture itself is inspired. So it's not just, there's not the Word of God just contained in the Bible. 2 Timothy says that all, every, every part of the, the Bible is God breathed. So, it's all inspired. And it, the writings themselves. So all scripture, you know, the whole part of it. And then the, when you see that word scripture in Greek, it's the, you translate it as the writings. It's, it, it's the same word as writing. So all the words, the writings themselves uh, that contain in scripture are inspired. So it's not just that the Bible contains the word of God, that it actually is the word of God, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. So how could the Bible be God's word when it actually is put to paper and ink by men? Second Peter 1, 20 through 21 tells us, and I'll read that, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So this is obviously referring back to the Old Testament, but it applies to the New Testament. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what verse 20 teaches us about the Bible is that it didn't come about by man's or the, the writer's own efforts. 
It didn't come about by the writer's own efforts. It actually, and it, it says here that uh, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. <clears throat> the statement, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things means that the scripture did not originate with men. The writers of scripture did not write their own private opinions. They wrote God's words. So what does verse 21 teach us about the Bible? That the origin of scripture was the Holy Spirit. It was God himself. The origin of scripture was, was the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, just we want to make sure also when you're reading Second Peter uh, 1 there, and it's talking about... Um, no, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, and it says again in verse 20, 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human prophet. So, it, you know, it may be misleading if you just hear that and you're thinking, well, maybe is, this, is it just dealing with prophecy, or what does he mean exactly by prophecy? So, uh, have, have any of you followed, studied this out, or do you understand what he's saying? Why is he, he referring specifically to prophecy, so what does he mean there? Or how do we how do we take that when we read it's saying prophecy? So because we're trying to apply it now to God's word, but it it, it keeps referring to prophecy here in Second Peter. So how do we how do we understand that with prophecy? What do we mean? What does the Bible mean? Or how do we understand this phrase or this term, prophecy? When we try to understand it, we don't. What do we typically think of with prophecy? If I, if so you're talking about a prophet, or you're saying you heard somebody, you know, when you're referring to a prophet, his prophecy. What do we typically refer to, generally speaking? What somebody says is going to happen. Yeah, so we're typically talking about some kind of event in the future that he has predicted. We receive this message from God. And we're talking about some future events. So we're talking about the book of Revelation. We're talking about an Old Testament prophet, Malachi, Jeremiah. They're predicting things that would happen in the future. Here, what we talk about when we're talking about prophecy or a prophet, it's more the general sense. That is, the person has received a message from God. So it doesn't really matter. It's not talking about the content of what they're saying, but just generally that the person has received this message from God and they're conveying that message. So that's what we're trying. That's what this this use of prophecy here. It's not so much talking about some message for the future, but rather just a message that a person uh, received from God that for God's people. And so I just say that so it's clear what what they're talking about here. Uh, top of forty nine. Scripture writers didn't write of their own volition or their own will. Rather, they were carried along. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. They picked up pens to write, but the words were God's. So Jeremiah 1.9 is a good example of this. He doesn't have it listed here. But Jeremiah 1.9, he says, I will put my words, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, he says, I will put my words into your mouth. So that's the idea. God is putting his words into the mouth of the prophet, and then they're, they're actually writing it. Because the Bible is the word of God, is without, it is without error, by definition. So if, if the Bible is the word of God, it's by definition without error. A teaching referred to as the inerrancy of Scripture. John seventeen seventeen. So that's one of the classic passages on this on the inerrancy of Scripture. Jesus states that God's word is truth. So it's impossible for God to breathe out falsehood or error by definition, because God can't lie. 
The Bible further teaches that Scripture is absolutely reliable. What does Jesus say about the Bible in John 10.35? The second half of the verse is that he, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be set aside. So what does that mean? It means uh, there cannot be error in Scripture. So Jesus testifying, because he's if you read John 10.35, he's actually making a reference back to Psalm 82. But the connection, where you, what, you, what he's trying to get at is that Scripture can't be wrong. Uh, he's making a, a connection there that if uh, it cannot be in error, there cannot be any uh, falsehood there. Jesus is even more specific in Matthew 5.18. Uh, can someone read Matthew 5.18? For I, virtually, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So he's saying, uh, so some of you may have studied this or memorized this verse in the King James, or, you know, depending on what version you read. But what is, what is Jesus talking about there when he says the letter or... Uh, not even the smallest detail can be changed. What is he? What is he talking about? What is he getting at there? <clears throat> I may have just given it away. So it's all important. It's all important. Yeah. So every, every even the littlest part of it is is important. So it it all matters. It can't be. None of it can be changed. None of it can be uh, erased or altered because all of it's important. Is this what Pastor was talking about that one time? I don't know if it's King James Version, where it's when it says that it's talking about like, and when they write in Hebrew or something, that's like a little dash or yeah. something like yeah. that can't even be changed. Or yeah. So the in the Greek, it's the the yod, which is the so if here's the line that you're writing on the yod, which is like Yahweh, that W's or the Y sound, that's the the yoda, and then you have the the tittle, which is like. Just like the the little, like the little hook that's on like a letter. So if you have, well, the meme, which is the M sound here, this this right here is the, the uh, yeah. So it's like the little hook on a letter. So he's saying not even that little hook or the smallest letter can actually be changed. Does it say that in in one of those versions? Yeah. yeah. So in the Greek, that's what it actually. Yeah. So the smallest letter or the smallest detail can't be changed. And that's what it's referring to. In the Hebrew, it's referring back to the, this this letter here and the little hooks that Hebrew has on words. Uh, certain letters, sorry. King James says one jot or one tittle. Yeah, jot or tittle, which is referring, uh, in the Greek, is getting to these these things here. Yeah, so so, so uh, some of us, we were joking like in seminary because you... You go through seminary and you read like modern versions, but you still memorize all your scripture. You have all your scripture memorized in King James for some reason, so it's like you you can't help but jot and tittle that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, so Jesus' statement was similar to the modern phrase "the dot of an eye" or "the cross of a T." So that's a good good analogy there: the dot of an eye or the cross of a T. What was his point? Again, the smallest detail can't be changed. Matthew 5.18 teaches the following two essential aspects of inspiration. So the very words of Scripture are God-breathed and inerrant, so that words that's bold, 
and the entirety of Scripture is God-breathed and inherent. So this is verbal, plenary inspiration. When you, if you read a systematic theology, this is what they, this is what they mean when you see that you'll hear a phrase verbal, plenary, uh, that the very words contained are, are God-breathed and that all of it is God-breathed and inherent. So, uh, the benefits. Any questions on any of that? So we learned from 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible is inspired. The verse goes on to say that the Bible is useful. There's a benefit to those who read it. According to the last part of this verse, what are the four areas that the Bible, does the Bible help? So 2 Timothy, it's useful for teaching, and that's blank one, for rebuking, blank two, correcting, is blank three. And then on the next page, number four is training in righteousness. And then uh, kind of turn it real back real quick just so we can summarize. So teaching, he says, what is right? Because we want to understand what exactly is, what exactly is Second Timothy 3.16 getting at? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So he lists these four things, and the author says that it's a benefit. So we can learn what is right, what is not right, number two. How to get right, correction. How to stay right, training in righteousness. But what is he... So I think one thing you need to understand is that what 2 Timothy 3.16, who's the audience? Who's Paul writing to? Or who's the... Who is the typical audience that's reading 2 Timothy 3.16? The intended audience for something like this. Oh, it's to Timothy, so it's to pastors. Yeah, so it's specifically, it's to Timothy, who's and he's getting ready to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So, absolutely. So it's he's writing this charge to pastors. but And then generally... We we'd say that it's right being written to Christians. You know, Timothy's a Christian. This is all Scripture is is you know beneficial to Christians. So, and that, that's how we want to understand the context. And I, you know, it may seem pedantic that I'm pushing this point, but so Second Timothy Second Timothy three sixteen is getting to pushing, helping us to understand that God's Word or the Bible equips us for the Christian life. It doesn't equip us. Doesn't just generally equip people for life in general. It doesn't equip non-believers or unbelievers it doesn't just teach it doesn't teach what unbelievers what is right or rebuke them for not being right because there, so there's an issue there and what what is the issue between the un- unbeliever and the, uh, the and the believer why do you think that maybe there's a difference or why is it why do we need to understand it specifically for the christian life what is what is uh Romans 1, for instance, talk about Romans like 1, 16 through 18. You don't have to read it, but if anyone knows what, what is going on there with Romans 1. Well, maybe I'll read it. <clears throat> so one eighteen, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his t- eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, for, so that people are without uh, excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what Paul is talking about in Romans is why, why an unbeliever can't just pick up the Bible and be gain any benefit from it is because they actually can't interpret the truth of the scriptures. They can understand it. They can understand the words that are contained, but they can't understand its significance for their life because their hearts are darkened. So that's why we want to make sure we understand 2 Timothy 3.16 is speaking to Christians and its its goal is to equip us, equip Christians for the Christian life. So again, not to make it, uh, we just don't want to think that well, you know, my coworker, you know, you should just read the Bible. You know, they're an, she's an unbeliever, but I should just, you know, if you just read the Bible, you'll probably be okay. Because they actually won't, because they're not going to be getting the significance of what God's word has for them. Because of their, because of what Romans 1 says. Their hearts are darkened. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.17. So we just looked at uh, 3.16 is what this we're talking about here. But 317 helps us to understand it. It says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The servant of God. So we just want to make sure we're clear on that point. <clears throat> so it is, uh, turning to page 50, it is obvious that the Bible is helpful, but what, with what specific areas does it help? The Bible, number one, is the Bible is essential for salvation. So, what does 2 Timothy 3.15b say that Scripture is able to do? It is able to make us wise for salvation, and it gives wisdom for salvation. And there should be a line there. I noticed that there's no line there, but it uh, gives wisdom for salvation. Were it not for Scripture, we would not know our lost condition, much less that Jesus died to provide our salvation. So this is kind of getting to that, what I just discussed. Were it not for scripture, we would not even know our lost condition. How is saving faith developed in non-believers according to Romans 10.17? So by hearing the word of God, it says Romans 10.17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and that message is heard through the word about Christ. So number two, the Bible is essential for Christian growth. Scripture paints a vivid picture when it says that you are born again at the point of salvation. You are a Christian, but you're only a baby Christian. You need to grow. So 1 Peter 2.2 describes the process of spiritual growth. From what do babies get nourished? According to 1 Peter 2.2. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. So he's making this connection here, Peter is, of that... uh, you know, of the milk, the nourishment that babies get from milk. As a baby Christian, then, what is your spiritual milk? So what do you guys... It's Exactly. So the the Word of God, the the Bible, is your spiritual milk. So how often often do babies eat? Yeah, constantly, right? And then, so what, uh, what happens if babies don't eat? Obviously, we know what happens. So this is trying to build this, this argument here. So what does the passage teach regarding your feeding on Scripture? How often do you need it? So using this analogy of, of, of a baby 
You need to be constantly. You need you need God's word constantly. So what is what is it that well you know why do babies need to eat constantly? Yeah. So they're growing and they need the strength, they need development. And it's the same, so there's the analogy there is where it's starting to lead. So why do we need to be in God's word constantly? Because we need God's word for the strengthening, for the building up that it, get, that it provides us. So strengthening and building up. And then number three, the Bible is essential for godly living. The writer of Psalm 119.9 asked the question that every Christian struggle with, how can I be clean from sin? So what is his answer at the end of the verse? And 119.9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. So Psalm 119.9 says, by living according to God's word. 119.11 is very similar. If we, uh, let me read it. It says, 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So what do you think he's, the psalmist is getting at there? When he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Can the scripture can help us avoid sin? Yeah. So getting to the main point of it, that I might not sin against you. So God's word, there's a direct connection between my not sinning against God and, and uh, God's word providing that ability. What do you think? What does he mean there? What do you think he's getting at when he says, "I have hidden your word in my heart"? He's filled with it. He's constantly reading it. And yeah. it's in his mind and his heart. He's just filled his whole exactly. So that's exactly what we're looking at, or getting exactly. So, page fifty-one. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he prayed for his disciples and all future Christians, as recorded in John seventeen. One request was that they would be sanctified. That is, they would be made holy. They would be set apart for God's use. Sanctified, set apart for God's use. How are Christians sanctified according to John 17, 17? And that says, sanctify them by the truth. Your, your word is truth. So God's word is the, is how Christians are sanctified according to John 17. According to Christ in John 17, 17. God's word. Again, there's a for some reason there's a line missing there. Many Christians say they they want to grow, they, yet they never spend time studying God's word. Scripture is clear, and this is this is really the, the a key point. There can be no growth and no godliness apart from the consistent, apart from consistent discipled, disciplined, sorry, Bible study. So the primary means of sanctification is the word of God. It's accomplished, the process of sanctification is accomplished by the Holy Spirit using the means of scripture. Using the means of scripture. And there's, this is an important idea because we, as we go about the Christian life, you know, this book, this book, the study is aimed at people, you know, early on in the Christian life or early or, you know, kind of foundational truths for the Christian life. And as we go about the Christian life, remember we talked about the problem of sin, and how do we how do we fight against sin? How do we uh, deal with the issue when we keep making the same mistakes? How do we what do we you know instead of becoming discouraged 
or trying to just try harder in my own my own efforts. What he's saying here is important. If you don't spend time studying God's word, then your your thought of actually growing, of of growing in godliness, is is actually a wasted effort because you you the, the two are intrinsic uh, are just linked. You you just have to uh, you have to study God's word in order. Uh, what we just talked about, Psalm one nineteen eleven. How are you hiding God's word in your heart? How are you using that resource if you don't ever study it? And this is a, this is a, a, an issue that a lot of Christians in their early walk, especially Christians who are saved at adulthood, because sometimes when you're a kid, you just are, you know, you're sitting through, you know, if you grow up in the church, you're just being, you're, you know, you're sitting in children's church, you're, you know, being made, of, you know, so you kind of just. It just comes in, but when you're saved as an adult, uh, it's really easy to not not spend that time in God's word, and so not doing so inhibits the Christian growth. So the Bible is essential for knowing God intimately. Number four, remember the Bible is not merely a book; it is God's word. It is God's self-revelation. It's God's revealing of Himself, what He has chosen to tell us about Himself. In the words of A.W. Tozer, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very, of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. So Jesus tells us in John 5.39 that the Bible, even the Old Testament, written before his physical birth, testify of him. To know, to know God personally and intimately, you need to study about him in his word. In the Christian classic, classic Evening by Evening, so this is a devotional that Spurgeon wrote, said about this, this particular verse, No more powerful motive can be urged upon Bible readers than this. He who finds Jesus finds life, heaven, all things. Happy is he who is searching his Bible, in searching his Bible, discovers his Savior. So, Scripture is an autobiography. The main topic of Scripture is a person, not a program. Scripture teaches teaches us about sin and salvation. It addresses relationships with spouses, employers, children, servants, and persecutors. It's filled with good and bad examples. It tells us what God expects. It brims with promises, yet the Bible is first and foremost an autobiography. It's God's revelation of himself. So that's an important idea that you, you know, one of the key points that you want to make sure you understand about the Bible. It's God's revelation of himself. When you read it, don't just look at the commands, promises, and examples. Look for God and what he's like. So what's another common mistake that people have, even in the unbelieving world, when they ask you, what is the Bible? You know, what are we talking about the Bible? Other whole is, you know, when you even think about other religions and what their holy book is, you know, we think of the Bible as just a rule book. Or it's a collection of stories. Or it's, you know, some, some tips for living a good life. Or a history book. You know, it is all those things, but it's primarily God's revelation of himself. So it's... And it, that understanding that is one of the keys to understanding Scripture. So when you're reading the Old Testament and you're not getting it, and it's hard, it's written in a way that they, they it's written in a way that it's not like modern literature when you're reading the Old Testament. 
and you're trying to understand why is why can't they just get to the point? If you ever read through, you know, even the book of Job, you're like, what, man, you're just kind of going on and on. Or reading Genesis, and you're like, man, what is this? Why are they telling me this crazy story about, you know, Jacob? What does this have to do with anything? You know, if we understand that the that the key ask, key person in any story, even if you're having looking at these characters, if the key person in the, the story is is God, then we can understand. Well, what we what is this story trying to teach me about God? In the book of Esther, God's not mentioned. God's not a, a, God's not a character, an explicit character in the book. So we read about the we read the book of Esther. If any of you've read it or try to do a Bible study through it, you know you have these characters: Esther, Mordecai, the king. You know what are they? What is the point of all this? But ultimately, it's teaching us something about God. Then the story begins to make sense, and we can understand it and how it its true intention. So important it's god's revelation of himself any questions on that or comments or feel free to to push back for years bible believers have stated that the bible is our only rule of faith and practice so you hear that a lot our rule it's rule of faith and practice however many men in churches teach that the bible is a good starting place but it has to be supplemented by tradition by psychology by other things 2 Peter 1, 3-4 teaches that God has given us everything we need for a godly life. What do these verses say about the sufficiency of Scripture? So 2 Peter 1, 3-4, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world in the world caused by evil desires. So verse four is, is an important part. It's, he has given us his, his precious promises. His God's promises to us are the key for how we can live live the Christian life, how we can have and, and escape the evil desires. So we have his promises. His promises are the key key aspect to living the Christian life. Page 52. We looked at 2 Timothy 3.16 in our discussion about inspiration. Verse 17 goes on to say that the Bible will make Christians fully prepared, that is, thoroughly equipped for ministry, so based on the fact that Scripture can do all of these things, what charge does Paul give to the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2? Can someone uh, read 2 Timothy 4.2? Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Thank you. So preach the word. Many preachers today, so that's one of the key charges you'll hear if you ever go to like a, a installation ceremony for a new pastor. It's always one of the main charges. Preach the word. You know, you don't, don't get caught up in politics. Don't get caught up in... Uh, you know, the, all the stuff that goes on in life, you know, gossip, these kind of things. Don't, don't carry off, go off on your own hobby horse or what, what really interests you. Preach the word. 
Many preachers today seem to preach anything but the Bible. So there's a reason for that. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 say that people will eventually refuse to hear the Bible. What they actually will want instead is that they will gather those who preach what they want. They'll gather those who preach the things that they want to hear. And sometimes if you've ever looked for a church, if you ever had to move into a new area or just been forced in a situation that you're looking for a new church and maybe gone around and visited some churches, sometimes you've come across a pastor like that or a congregation like that where the congregation is getting exactly what they want. they got this pastor who doesn't who preaches lighthearted messages, feel-good messages, he doesn't challenge them with God's word, and he's doing so because that's what the people want. Although the Bible is thought by many to be antiquated or out of touch, scripture, scripture teaches that God's word alone contains everything we need to know about how to live. Christians from the city of Berea were commended for their attitude toward the Bible and Bible teachers. So how did they respond to the preaching of God's word in Acts 17, 10 through 11? It says that they received... I'll read that one, Acts 17, 10 through 11. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arrival, arriving there, they, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they received God's word with eagerness and examined the scriptures to see if what they were hearing was true. Those two aspects, receive the message with eagerness and examining the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. So pastors are only helpful to the extent that they direct people to scripture. Indeed, this book is only helpful to the extent that it points you to scripture. This book, this actual study that we're looking at. Your faith and convictions must rest securely on scripture, not hearsay, not opinion, not feelings. The Bible alone is God-breathed and therefore is both helpful and sufficient. So the Bible has all we need for every stage of our life. It has all we need. It has all that people need for every stage of history. So there's not coming up, there was not a point in history that the Bible wasn't, did not speak to, including today. So the application of scripture. Now that you know your need for scripture, let's be very practical. How do you go about Bible study? So Joshua 1.8 gives a three-step process. So it says, read it. Number one, keep this book of law of the law always on your lips. So what are some excuses that Christians, maybe including yourself, give for not reading? What are some typical things you may hear? If you're talking to somebody and they're saying, you know, you're talking to them about Bible study, or maybe yourself. So maybe somebody has... Uh, you know, some things you thought when you read something, you know, about reading the Bible and, you know, what are some of the struggles you have? Or what are the, some of the struggles you hear? Not enough time. Time. So that's a big one. You know, I don't have the time, you know, especially today. You know, this is, and this will come up again later in the study, this, this issue of time. So that's a good one. What else do people say or what else do you hear? Not knowing how to interpret what they read. Yeah. And that, that goes to what we were saying earlier. Sometimes you're reading something in the Old Testament and it's just really 
hard to understand what's going on because the scripture is made up of multiple genres. So you're reading, you're moving from history book to poetry to prophecy to apocalyptic and you're trying to understand and sometimes when you're early on in the Christian life or maybe if you just haven't had a chance to go through a good uh, how to work through your Bible type study, you're trying to read it all the same way. You're trying to read it just like you would pick up any book and read it. When you're not under, when it's, so you not understanding, it's hard to understand, there's no time. Well, is there any others that you've heard? So those are usually the two big ones. Hard to understand, I don't have the time, uh, and with that it's, it's too long, you know, you're trying to work through, uh, a portion of the book and it's just a long, uh, we, we tend to be, uh, our entire culture, I think, right now, we, we don't like to devote good, a decent amount of time to, to one thing because we just have so much going on. So even if we have the time, it's like, well, I had this hour of free time, but, you know, I only really want, I have to, I need to use this hour to get a bunch of things done, so I'll give 10 minutes. But in 10 minutes, you're not really going to get, it's hard to even get going in, in, when you're studying scripture. You know, you're, you're talking about a book where, the whole, a whole entire book of the Bible may be read when it was first given. It was read before the people, so people would be sitting there for an hour, maybe listening to someone talk. So that's you know, there's a big difference between that culture and today's culture. So what is Joshua one eight when it says, "Keep this book of, of the law always on your lips"? So how does that speak to the fact? How does jo- how do, what is Joshua saying there refute some of those? What is that? How would we take that and apply it to that those excuses? Can we or does it? You can't be talking about it if you don't know. Right. So so that's one aspect. We need to make sure we know it because we can't be if we're not dis- how do we discuss something we don't even we're not even familiar with. So, but when he's talking about um, keeping the book of law always on your lips, you know, then it's maybe not so much where if we don't have the time and it's too hard to understand, then start somewhere where it's easy to understand. Memorize a small portion and just meditate on that. So then you're just applying yourself. Instead of saying, this is too much, so I'm not going to do any, take a smaller portion and then meditate on that. Keep it on your lips. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with your kids. Talk about it with your, uh, you know, your significant other. Find a way to work it into your your daily routine because we are busy. So the, the, for someone to say that you know find time at certain stages of life isn't realistic. It doesn't take into account what people have going on nowadays. To simply say, well, you, you find time. You can find time. Maybe, but it's also easier to just say, find a way to work it into your daily schedule so that you're actually not having to set apart, you know, an hour that you may may or may not have. Finding ways to work it in where, wherever you can. Deuteronomy 6, 6-9 is a similar passage. According to these verses, when and how often should you place yourself under the influence of the Bible? So Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. So this is a good one. This is what I was talking about at the time issue. This is Moses giving the charge to the nation. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Now, the Israelites and Jews today took this, like, literally. So you'll see, uh, if you go to Israel, you'll see these things called mezuzah. They're like these little cases that are on every door. If you go, every door of every house, every building has these little scrolls that they attach. We're going off of this passage. Or they'll see, they have these phylacteries where they'll wear these little things on their head that are contained portions of scripture. They'll wear them on their forehead. Or they'll wrap portions of scripture wrapped in leather around their arms. They literally are taking, bind these to your foreheads, wrap, put on the door frames of your houses. But what, if you think about this practically, what is he getting at here? What is he talking about when he's giving all these examples? What do you think he's getting at? Should we be interpreting this, you know, is this a uh, literal, should we look at this and think literally? Is there a benefit to strapping it to your head, scripture to your head, and, right, so it seems silly, looking at it from the outside, what, what it seems, what Moses seems to be getting at is that we should be finding ways, always, throughout our day, finding ways that we can get scripture into our mind, talking about them with your with people, talking with your kids. When you're at home, when you're at work, when you're lying down, when you're getting up, bind them to your, you know, so you're not just trying to set aside, this is, I was talking about this with Pastor Ken, we were talking about with the, you know, sometimes people will be pushing really hard with family devotions, and they'll say, you know, you should be doing, you know, you'll have certain churches or pastors or teachers, and they'll be pushing the family devotion, like you're not, you're, you're doing a disservice to your kids, to your family, if you're not setting aside this time, making people feel guilty for do, not doing family devotions. And what uh, Ken was telling me, and and I agree with, is that, you know, based off Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, you know, realistically in in today's day, into the the culture we live in, and based off Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, it's it's actually better to just look for opportunities to work scripture into a, a natural conversation. So when your kids do something, or say something, or ask a question, use it as an opportunity to work scripture in. When a friend of yours says something and it, 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 it opens up that door to work scripture in. As you're driving, you know, some people will drive in their car and they can find that that's the one time that they'll have quiet. Or maybe it's not, you know, if you're, but there's, you know, if you're going for a job, or you're working out, or you're doing something, you know, you're just looking for opportunities throughout your day to work that scripture in. In a way that, you know, you're not feeling guilty constantly. Like if, when people are saying, like, you know, you should be doing family devotions. Maybe you should. I'm not saying that it's, you shouldn't do family devotions. I'm just saying that, you know, don't let it get, don't feel guilty. You know, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 seems to be speaking to the fact that just try to work it into your natural life as you go about your day. Page 53. Reading scripture with understanding is not easy. And so Jill was, this is what Jill was talking about. You need help. 1 Corinthians 2.14 teaches that the unsaved person without the Spirit cannot and will not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So we talked about this. This is the issue of depravity, the depravity of the human mind, the closed nature of the unsaved mind. They can't discern it because it is discerned through the Spirit. That is capital S, Spirit. 
The things of God are discerned through the Spirit. By contrast, the Christian, that is the one who has the Spirit, is able to make judgments about Scripture. Why? Because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He has the mind of Christ. So 1 Corinthians uh, 2.16 says that you have the mind of Christ. That is, you have thought, the thoughts, the very thoughts of Christ are revealed to you by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, you have, you have the author of Scripture living in you, helping you apply it, apply what it means. And we'll, we'll uncover that a little bit more as he says in chapter 9. So, um, that, that statement needs to be unpacked, but we'll get there in, in 9. But it's important to understand that, you know, when we, it doesn't always make sense and it's not easy, you know, but you need to, uh, that's what, you know, you, you need to commit yourself to it, pray about it, and understand. And if, if what scripture is saying true about you having the Holy Spirit in you, then, what it's also true that 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 Holy Spirit will help you to uh, apply it correctly or understand it correctly. <clears throat> so one nineteen eighteen, Psalm one nineteen eighteen it says, "Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in God's in your law. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law." So he's saying, open my eyes, uncover my eyes, uncover, unblind my, my eyes. And then this purpose clause, so that I may see, that I may truly see. What he's saying there is that the natural state, he's speaking to the natural state of a person is that your eyes are covered. That you can't really understand the true beauty, the, the depth of God's word, of God's law. You can't appreciate that is a wonderful thing and not a burdensome thing unless God himself is the one that opens your eyes. And then the Spurgeon quote here, that last part of the Spurgeon quote is, is important. So it says, Texts will often refuse to reveal their treasures to you till you open them with the key of prayer. With the key of prayer. So it's important. Number two, thinking about it. So meditating, meditate on it day and night. So meditation in scripture is not thoughtlessness. It's not emptying, you know, the Eastern religions where you empty yourself of all, all thinking. It's not this emptying aspect. Rather, it is thinking, it's applying yourself to the thinking about scripture with an emphasis on personal application. So that's the important part. Personal application. How does this, how did what I just read in my, you know, I had this, I read this verse this morning. How does that apply? How does it apply to me today, sitting here in 2016 in Downriver, Michigan? How does it apply to my life? <clears throat> the Hebrew word, which is translated as meditate in Josh, Joshua 1.8, literally means to moan or mutter. It communicates the idea of deep thought, as though someone were muttering to himself under his breath, so consumed in his concentration that he is oblivious to those around him. God commands you to meditate, to think about the word, especially regarding the application to your life. So included in meditation is scripture memory. You can't always carry a Bible, but you can carry portions of it in your memory. So 119, Psalm 119, 1. And explain how it addresses scripture memory. So 119.
Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. That is walking. When he's talking about walking, he's talking about obeying. So those who are obeying God's word. You have to know God's word to obey it. In other words, that's what he's getting at. You have to know God's word to obey it. And then number three there, obey it. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. So this is, again, building on Joshua's, uh, Joshua 1.8. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Here's the most difficult step of the three, yet the most important. Reading the Bible is good, but doing it must follow, but doing it must follow directly on its heels. So you must apply what you read in scripture to your everyday life. So James 1, 22 through 25 discuss two different kinds of people. Who are they? And what is the difference between them? So James 1, 22 through 25 says, Do not merely listen to the word, but so and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at the fa- his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So there's two people James is referring to here with this this picture. The one who looks and forgets, the one who looks in the mirror and forgets, and the one who looks and then looks more intently, fixes his eyes on it and looks intently. So obedience to scripture demands a difficult thing, change. So you must be ready to begin doing things the Bible commands and stop doing things the Bible forbids. This process of change is a final goal, that you should be more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 refers to. And this is, if you remember, we read 2 Timothy 4.2. Let me turn back and this was the charge. Remember, it was the charge that Paul was giving Timothy. Preach the word. When Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. What is the goal, what is the difference between preaching, uh, Pastor Ken standing up on Sunday morning and preaching, and what I'm doing right here? I mean, we're both trying to look at the Bible, we're both teaching you, but there's a there's a difference between what what a pastor is looking to do on Sunday morning. He's calling you to change. He's calling you to respond to God's word. So that is it's the key aspect of preaching. When a pastor stands up on Sunday morning, he's calling for you to listen to what God's word has to say and apply it to your life and change. He's, this, that's the difference between you know just doing a Bible study with your friends, trying to understand more about the scripture and, and actual preaching. Is you're looking to get change, and that's what he's he's speaking to here. This, the goal of, of studying scripture, of knowing scripture, is change. It's becoming more Christ-like, and that's why you know that's one of the key things that Paul is telling Timothy: preach the word, get people to respond to God's word. Respond is and response is that they would change to be more Christ-like. Your goal for every time you read the Bible should be to change in order to be more pleasing to God. Stuart Custer, a godly Bible teacher and scholar, writes, What is in the Bible is not there to just give you historical background or theological precision. It's there, it's there to make you what you should, excuse me, to make 
you what you should be and to mold your understanding of Scripture so that it may mold your character and transform you into the kind of person that God wants you to be. So that it may mold your character and transform you into the kind of person that God wants you to be. So Joshua 1.8 does not end with a command, but with a promise. If you read, apply, and obey the Bible, you'll be rewarded with that spiritual prosperity and success. So, the, the four key points of the lesson here. The Bible is inspired... It's God's word, not man's word, and therefore is without error. So by definition, if it's inspired, it's without error. It's profitable. It tells you what you need to know about life and eternity. It's sufficient. Is our only rule for faith and practice. It needs no supplement. And that it must be applied. Read it, think about it, obey it. The goal of Bible study is change is to change uh, is is change to us. Wait, that, that kind of sounds weird. It's changing us. The goal is to make us more like Christ, Christ likeness. Any questions on any of that? Is it any any parts of it unclear? Okay. If not, we uh, will close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for the study that uh, we can look at your word to think more clearly about it. Uh, we thank you for some of the reminders from scripture to uh, the importance of your word, that uh, it is your very word, that the words themselves are important and profitable to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy in saving people and, and giving us understanding uh, about yourself, revealing yourself to people who don't deserve it. We pray that uh, this study and the time that we spend this evening would be uh, helpful in, in applying your word to our life, that we would help us to uncover those parts of our life where we need to um, work on, to uh, uh, uncover so that we can uh, expose them to your uh, your light. We pray that uh, even in this the rest of this week that we may look for opportunities throughout the day, throughout our busy lives to uh, apply and think about Scripture and how it should be changing us more and more like Christ. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.